For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. Have you ever thought about becoming an organ donor? The major organs that are listed in the New York State Donor Life Registry that people would be consenting to are heart, liver, lung, pancreas, intestines, and kidneys. So one organ donor can save up to eight lives if they were able to use all of those organs. What about becoming a living donor? I was a little bit of a better match, and we knew down the road Thomas may ultimately need another kidney donation because of the disease that never goes away. So uh, at that point, uh, it was decided that I was going to be the one to donate my kidney to Thomas. For donor recipients, the donation is literally a donation to life. On 6.40 p.m. on August the 19th, I got called. She goes, now how soon can you be here? We got the perfect match for you. On this podcast, stories of brotherly love between siblings and union brothers. We'll learn about the organ donation program in New York State. We hear from a fifth-generation Local 3 IBEW member who's a living donor. And we talk to a retired union member whose life was saved after he received a new heart. Robin Haberman is the Director of Outreach and Communications for Donate Life New York State. Robin, welcome to the Union Strong Podcast. Thanks so much, Darcy. I'm happy to be here. And Robin, can you tell us a little bit about the Donate Life program? Sure. So Donate Life New York State is a nonprofit organization, and our mission is to increase organ, eye, and tissue donation throughout New York State through advocacy, education, promotion, and research. We also operate the New York State Donate Life Registry. So that's the uh, statewide database that records the wishes of people who would like to be organ, eye, and tissue donors upon their passing. So how many people are currently on the organ transplant waiting list in New York State? In New York State alone, we have nearly 9,000 people that are waiting for an organ transplant that they need to save their life. The vast majority of those people are waiting for kidneys. Uh, In New York State, if you're waiting for a kidney, you're probably spending five to seven years on dialysis. So there's a great need in our state. We're the third, I think we have the third highest number of people in the country who need organs right now. And so if somebody is interested in registering and uh, going ahead to sign up to donate their organs or tissue or eyes, Mm -hmm. um, can anyone do that or are there age restrictions? There is... uh, the age minimum is 16, so 16 and 17-year-olds were recently given the opportunity to enroll as organ, eye, and tissue donors, which is fantastic. So when they go to get their learner's permit at the DMV, they can say yes. There is no cutoff. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, a 95-year-old man was an organ donor. I think he's the oldest recorded in our country. Wow, is that right? So yeah, it's amazing. There was a lot of news articles about it. Amazing, just simply amazing. Um, so there's no age cutoff, and there's no medical there's no automatic medical rule out. So a lot of people say either I'm too old or I'm too sick because I have XYZ condition. There's nothing that automatically precludes someone from enrolling as a donor. At the time of their passing, the medical team would do a complete evaluation. They're not going to transplant something that isn't safe, obviously. So even you know, cancer often means organs can be donated, but eyes can still be donated. So there's so many different things where maybe you know it might stop this one thing from happening, but 
who knows? And in the future, as medical technology just improves and improves, I think we'll find fewer and fewer limitations on those as well. And so what organs and tissue can people donate after death? Sure. So the major organs that are listed in the New York State Donate Life Registry that people would be consenting to are heart, liver, lung, pancreas, intestines, and kidneys. So one organ donor can save up to eight lives if they were able to use all of those organs. For tissue, we're talking about eye donation that can restore sight in someone who would otherwise be blind. We're talking about skin that can help burn victims heal blood vessels, bone, connective tissue. So when you talk about hip replacements and knee replacements, dental work, there's so many different implications. And one tissue donor can help and heal up to 75 individuals. So So, pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. Um, Can parents of minor children make the decision to donate their organs? So uh, under the age of 16, there's no registry for enrolling in advance. But if you know, the worst thing happened and a child was, you know, had been declared brain dead and was going to pass away or had passed away and was able to be an organ donor, the family would be asked for their consent. I think in New York, there are 120 children who are waiting for organs right now, roughly. Mm -hmm. Um, And size matters, right? So you can't take, you know, a 50-year-old man's heart and give it to a six-month-old. Right. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, you know, they do need organs for children. And when those you know, terrible accidents do occur or those health events where a child is able to be an organ donor, the family would be asked, obviously, with a great deal of sensitivity. So what's the biggest obstacle to organ donation? And I'm thinking, you know, what comes to mind for me is when people um, decide not to do it or they think, no way, that's not something I, I would do. I mean, has anything to um, have to do with people thinking it could have an impact on their medical treatment? Absolutely. Uh, Completely false, but we do Mm -hmm. hear it all the time that people are concerned their medical care would be affected. I hear people say, you know, if if you enroll at the DMV, you get a little heart symbol on your license. And they say, what if I'm in a car accident and the EMT sees that heart and then they're not going to save my life and they're going to let me die, which we know is not true. You know, the EMTs want to save your life. That's Mm -hmm. what they're there to do. The doctors in the hospitals are trying to save your life. They don't even know who's registered. They don't have access to the registry, the hospital staff. If someone were declared brain dead and was able to be an organ donor, they would call the organ procurement organization in that area. And those are the people who have access to that information. So they would be able to say, yes, this person was enrolled and has given their consent prior to their passing. Or they go and talk to the family and ask them for their consent. And so there's a lot of uh, myths out there. You know, people watch mm-hmm. Grey's Anatomy and they watch all these other medical dramas and there's all this shenanigans. Simply not true. And then and so if um, for whatever reason you can't if, if you want to be an organ donor and after your mm-hmm. death, some of the organs can't be used to save someone's life. There's also an option, right? To Do you opt in for your organs or tissue to be used for research? Can you do that, too? Yeah, so sometimes they'll, um, usually it's if they take an organ for transplant and it becomes not viable, it may be donated to research. Uh, tissues and eyes have a much longer window for recovery. So one of the hindrances to organ donation, because we say, oh, one person can save eight lives, so why are so many people waiting? But the truth is that very few people die in a way that makes organ donation possible. We're typically talking about brain death. So we're talking about a stroke, aneurysm, opioid overdose, or some kind of traumatic injury. 
has to be a hospital death. Someone who dies at home is not going to be an organ donor because there has to be circulation and blood flow and oxygen and all of those other things still going on in order to recover those organs. Eye and tissue have a much longer recovery period. So even if someone died at home or in hospice or in a way that didn't make organ donation possible, it's still possible they can be an eye or tissue donor. So it's best if the family is aware of those wishes and, and you know, can pursue them. And so for someone who's on the list, if when that finally happens, first of all, I can't imagine the emotion. So you just found out your, your life is going to be saved, but then knowing someone had to die in order yes. for that to happen. Um, You must be aware of some of those stories. I mean, what is that like for people? I think it's complicated, as you can imagine, exactly what you said there. You know, I think just being on the waiting list is complicated because here you are hoping for this miracle, but knowing that somebody else is going to die for you to get it. And, you know, we, we think we have to change our mindset, right? People are going to die regardless. And the hope is that if they do, they're able to make this gift at the end of their life. You know, we can't save them, you know, there's nothing we could have done to save them, but if we can make something good come out of it, that's a wonderful thing. But people have very different reactions. You know, some people dive right into our organization and they want to give back as much as they can. Mm -hmm. They want to tell their story. They want to motivate others. Other people are more private. Um, A lot of people will communicate afterwards. They can write letters anonymously through the organ procurement organization. Some people will send those letters just as soon as they're given the green light to go ahead and reach out to their donor family and donor families can reach out to the recipients. Uh, Some people don't want to, you know, some people don't feel comfortable. They feel guilty. A whole range of complicated emotions. Yeah, that's interesting. I was wondering that. How does that work? Because there's got to be some people who are a recipient who want to know who that person, yeah. you know, where that came from, right? And then, then you, mm-hmm. how does that process work? Yeah, it's it's almost like a double blind situation. So if you're a recipient, um, you can contact the organ procurement organization, and you would send a letter through them. They usually edit out the name and any identifying details. But I think different OPOs operate a little bit differently. But then they would forward that letter on to the donor family. The same thing with the donor family; they can send letters to the recipient and say this. You know, this was my daughter, this was my mother, this is what they were like, you know, and they can really share a little bit about their loved one. Mm-hmm. Usually it takes both parties saying, yes, I want to meet that person or yes, I want to talk to that person. And then if both people, it's almost like an adoption, right? It's just mm-hmm. a double line. But then if both people want to want to get that information, then they can make that connection. Um, and then sometimes you hear these miraculous stories where people just find each other through talking about their experience. And then it's like, oh, wait, you received a kidney on July 14th. My daughter was a donor on July 14th, and they've, they've hmm. found each other organically, which are really just incredible and moving stories. I bet. So is your yeah. organization also involved in living donations? To an extent. So we do share a lot of stories from living donors and uh, living uh, people who've received uh donations from from living donors. So kidney and liver can both come from a living donor. We have two kidneys and our livers are amazing because they can regenerate and grow back. So they could take half of a liver and give it to somebody who needs it. um, And then the donor would recover. So uh, there's been a lot of attention lately on living kidney donation because there is such a good uh, equal quality of life afterwards. You know, people have equally long, equally healthy lives with one kidney. Mm-hmm. So uh, the recovery is fairly quick and it, it saves a life. Typically, it's when you know someone, right? You know, mm-hmm. if you have a child or you have a spouse or you have a sibling who needs a kidney, that's the more common thing or a friend. 
But there are some people who just decide to donate altruistically. They don't even know. Uh, they just feel like they've been blessed with good health and they want to do something wonderful. And they just go and they donate. And sometimes they find out who it is and sometimes they don't. And they're just happy to have donated. Yeah, so, that's amazing to me when yeah. people donate to complete strangers or someone you right. just casually know, you know, which right. it happens. And yeah, and we've it, seen billboards, people advertising for kidneys on billboards. Mm-hmm. We've seen, you know, social media messages where someone says, I need a kidney or my you know, this person I know needs a kidney and it travels, you know, a thousand miles. And then somebody in New York is donating to somebody in California because it was a friend of a friend. Amazing, incredible stories. So, Robin, what, so the, it's a relatively easy process to go ahead and, and register? To register as a donor on the New York State Donate Life Registry is very easy. It takes about 30 seconds. You can go to donatelife.ny.gov, and it's basically going to ask for your name, your birthday, your address, and that's pretty much it, um, and then you're enrolled. Uh, you can make specifications. So if you want to donate everything except your eyes, if you only want to donate your eyes, people are very funny about their eyes. Or if, you know, if there's anything that you're not comfortable um, agreeing to, you can make those specifications online as well. You mentioned at the beginning the numbers for New York State. Do you have national numbers of people on waiting lists? Yeah, I think right now there's about 110,000 people who are waiting for organs wow. across the country. And have you seen an increase in people registering? Um, we're tracking that COVID, you know, 2020 was a tough year. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously we had typically 80% of people enrolled in the New York state donate life registry come through the DMV. And there was a lot less traffic last year, obviously, because people weren't going in and they were holding off on those transactions if they were able to. So it, it slowed down a little bit, but it's mostly bounced back. Right now we have 6.7 million people enrolled as organ donors in New York organ and tissue donors, I should say, in New York, but that still represents only 43% of the New York population. Okay. And that's compared to a national average of 62%. So we're one of the lowest percentages of enrolled hmm. populations in the registry in New York. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> well, we hope so, that, that this helps. That's the goal. Um, yes, every little bit helps. And every individual can make a huge difference, obviously. You can save up to eight lives and impact 75 more. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. We're going to include links um, you know, in our, our show notes and on our website so people can Perfect. get more information. So yes. uh, Robin Haberman, thank you for taking the time. Uh, uh, Robin Haberman is Director of Outreach and Communications at Donate Life New York State. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you, Darcy. Have a great day. Most organ and tissue donations occur after the organ donor has died. But in some cases, organs are donated while the donor is alive. That was the case for our next guest. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Chris Erickson, Jr., who's a member of the International Union of Electrical Workers, IBEW Local 3. Hi, Chris. Hi, Darcy. So, Chris, how long have you been a member of IBEW Local 3? Um, I've been a member since 2007, so about 14 years now, uh, and I'm a fifth-generation Local 3 IBEW member. That's fantastic. And what is your role now at the local? I'm currently an assistant business manager. So can you give us an idea um, on, the, on the members of IBEW Local 3? Who, give us an overview of who your members are. Sure. We have nearly 30,000 members uh, in Local 3 in 40 different divisions. So really, it encompasses as much of the electrical industry as possible. And that's always been our strength 
uh, historically, knowing that we can support uh, each other across these 40 different divisions. All right. That's great. Thank you. So we've been talking about organ donation. And while most organ and tissue donations occur after the donor has died, some organs and tissues can be donated while the donor is alive. And that's where your story comes in. Chris, can you tell me about your own personal experience? Sure. Uh, I've been a living donor. I donated a kidney back in 2017. uh, And it's a pretty interesting story uh, that unfortunately, you know, isn't necessarily unique because there's so many people in need of uh, an organ donation. But luckily enough, um, we were able to kind of handle it within our family. Uh, And unfortunately, that isn't always the case. But back uh, years ago, my younger brother was diagnosed with chronic kidney disease while he was in high school. Uh, And at the time, he was able to manage that with diet and exercise and medication. Uh, But ultimately, we knew that he was going to need a kidney donation because uh, slowly but surely, the kidney function was diminishing. Mm -hmm. So in 2017, um, we had, uh, the time is starting to come close. My father, uh, Chris Erickson, who was the business manager of local three, uh, he had gotten tested and our family kind of decided he was going to be the one to donate the kidney. But unfortunately we ran into a bit of a roadblock when he was ruled out because of some med- medication he was on unrelated to anything specifically with his kidney, uh, the doctors decided he wasn't the best option for Thomas. So uh, we kind of had to call an audible at that point. Myself and my other younger brother, Robbie, uh, we both got tested. We were both matches, which was a relief. Um, And we joke about it. We say we had, you know, one of the most ultimate games of rock, paper, scissors to decide (laughs) who was going to donate a kidney. But I was a little bit of a better match and we knew down the road, Thomas may ultimately need another kidney donation because of the disease that never goes away. So uh, at that point uh, it was decided that I was going to be the one to donate my kidney to Thomas. So, I mean, it's your brother. I'm sure obviously, you know, you love your brother, you want to help him, but um, what was that decision like, Chris? I mean, did you have to say, you know, well, let me hold on a second. Let me think this through. Or was it, I, you know, I'm going to do it. It's the right thing to do. What did what were those feelings like? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's, it's a no brainer. You want to be able to help your brother, help anybody really in that kind of situation. He was 25 at the time. Um, so, you know, you know, he's got a career. He was in law school at the time. Uh, He's been struggling with this, and it would be something that would immediately make his life better. Um, You know, I would be lying if I'd say you don't think about how it may affect you. Sure. But when you talk it out, when you do some research, and, you know, the National Kidney Foundation is an organization that provides so much education and awareness. They have workshops, so you can really dive in and and understand the nuances that my life isn't negatively affected by donating a kidney. I'm not at higher risk of kidney disease by donating a kidney as long as I, you know, keep a healthy diet and watch certain things, I'm going to have as great a life as I would have if I didn't donate a kidney at the time. 
well, I can't imagine that conversation with your brother and then you both going in because that's you go in together, obviously, on the same day, right? Yeah, the process um, was, you know, pretty simple. You show up to the hospital at the same time, 530, 6 o'clock in the morning, and, you know, you get ready, you, they check your vitals, and uh, you get prepared for the surgery. And here I am thinking I'm going to get put onto a bed and wheeled in like it's a movie. <laughs> and, you know, a nurse comes in, they say, okay, are you ready? I said, yeah. And they say, all right, well, let's go. And you start walking down the hallway. And next thing you know, you're in an operating room and the lights are on. There's everybody, all these medical professionals going about their business like I'm not even there. And it's just a a little bit of a surreal experience. But, you know, a few hours later, you wake up in recovery and, you know, you're happier than you could even imagine being able to do that. Yeah, that must have been something else. And that makes me think, too, with your dad, you know, um, Chris Erickson Sr., that was probably tough for him to want to and not be able to. It was uh, very difficult, that part of it. You know, he felt he was uh, the father and, you know, he is where he was in life and he didn't want to have to see any of his sons go through that, but it was uh, not an easy conversation time, but we were able to stick together. And luckily, like I said, we had the options, which a lot of people don't even have those options. Well, what a strong family. So now you go through the surgery and now you're waiting and then your brother gets your kidney and you have to wait for him, you know, to come out. Is he everything go OK with the surgery? And, and how is he doing today? Yep, everything uh, worked out really well with him. Uh, The recovery time in the hospital, it's a little bit harder of a recovery on the donor uh, in terms of the physical kind of, you're beat up a little bit more. uh, And, you know, once he had the new kidney and it's up and functioning and everything's well, he feels like a million bucks because all of a sudden he's got a Mm. perfectly functioning kidney. And within a week after the surgery, I'm still hobbling around my apartment, and he was at a fish concert. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't sound fair. I don't know, Thomas. Yeah. Maybe he should have, should have canceled that concert plan <laughs> just for you. That's okay. He That's was going funny. no matter what, and I was glad. That's he was great. <laughs> That's great. And so, um, and you're okay today? Nothing, no side effects from that? Nope. Um, like I said, it's, I'm no, at no worst risk of kidney disease after being a living donor. You just have to make sure you pay attention to things like salt intake, good diet, uh, because you may be at a little bit higher risk for hypertension um, because of the kidney. But as long as I take care of myself, I won't have any issues. That's great. And so, um, you know, in your case, you you just explained donating a kidney to your brother, a family member. But I've heard at your local, you've had other union members who have donated to their co-workers. Is that right? Yes. Uh, you know, the one thing about um, this happening to our family is that it became a very public topic. Uh, my father was able to discuss this at union meetings with a thousand local three members in the room um, talking about going through this process. And that's the biggest thing that, you know, um, people going through this can, can have to hear that other people are going through similar circumstances. And then all of a sudden after the meeting, a member comes up and says, Oh, my cousin's going through the same thing, or my sister needs a kidney. And ultimately we hear a story about 
two local three electricians working together uh, on a job site. It just happens to come up. Yeah, I, I'm going to need a kidney. And another brother says, I'll get tested. Didn't even think twice. They were a match and they were able to uh, share that bond because wow. one local three brother didn't know him from, you know, Adam. And he said, I'll get tested, was a match, and donated his kidney. That's fantastic. And, yeah, we're talking about union brothers and, you know, not not siblings here. But that is right. that is incredible that someone would, would do that. And people do do that. I was getting uh, chills when you were explaining that. It's just, it's, it, you know, the feeling after, I think you were saying it, you wake up, right, and knowing that you've done something like that for someone. So um, that makes me think, too. So, you know, for someone, for you doing it for a family member, so the union brother doing it for his other union brother, what about the like the medical costs? Is it on that person donating the kidney to pay for all the medical costs? It's actually um, to avoid that that obstacle. So if a donor, you know, is willing to donate a kidney, but they may not have medical coverage that would, you know, cover it, it's on the recipients, the organ recipient is their medical coverage is the one that would pay for it. So luckily for us at the time, uh, Thomas was still in law school. He was under 27 years old. So he was still covered by my father's medical coverage, Mm -hmm. um, which could have been a significant impact for somebody who doesn't have quality health care the way that we do in Local 3. And to think that that would be a hindrance is really just heartbreaking. Yeah. And I'm just wondering and uh, wrapping up, what would you what would your message be to someone um, who is considering this uh, living donation? What would you say to them? I would say it's probably one of the greatest things that you could do uh, in your life to be able to help somebody and positively impact them. And if you have any trepidation, thoughts, concerns, there's groups, there's people you could reach out to. Uh, there's a whole network of information and, you know, almost a, a peer-to-peer type of system where, you know, I will talk to anybody about it and I would say it's the greatest thing that you could do. Well, it is. a Chris Erickson, Jr., what a wonderful gift you've given your brother and a beautiful story, really. I want to thank you for sharing your story with us. Well, I appreciate it. And that's the best part about it, being able to talk about it and, you know, kind of shine light on something that people are going through and see if you can help them and make differences in people's lives. Yeah, well, you're an inspiration. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. My next guest is the recipient of an organ transplant, Dave Gray. Hi, Dave. Hi, how are you this morning? Good. So I know, yes. Dave, I got your, your name and, and some of your information about your experience through Donate Life New York State. Um, and it's my understanding, Dave, you got a heart transplant a few years ago. Is that right? That's correct. I received my organ on August the 20th, 2016. Can you share with us a little bit about your own story? How did you come into a situation where you needed the heart transplant? In the summer of 2015, I was diagnosed with viral cardiomyopathy, and it took me downhill rather quickly where I couldn't take care of myself by the fall of 2015. I entered the hospital on November the 30th, and I was there for 177 days, so I got my organ. So, oh, wow. So what you get to a point where they say, hey, the only option you have is to have this transplant. What, what it was that like, and how did they explain that process? Well, they called a family meeting, 
in July of 2015, and I'm still I'm still in shock that they said, you know, hey, we need to send you down to New York to be evaluated for a heart transplant. Mm. And I was just, I couldn't believe it. I just, you know, I'm a normal person every day. I go to work every single day. I was never a sickly person, always healthy. And a virus attacked my heart. Hmm. And so then, we, had the fa- we had the family meeting mm-hmm. and we had to pick the hospital in New York, which we picked Dr. Agarwal and Westchester Medical Center. I first went to Mount Sinai, but that's too much for upstaters and the families to get into the city. And Westchester is a very, you know, accredited hospital. So mm-hmm. we chose to go there and I started visiting there and doing testing. And she told me to be a matter of time, you know, go home and get my affairs in order. Tell your family you're going to be moving in Westchester and meeting your new family. And you're going to be here four to six months, you know, waiting for your transplant. So what that's what was that like? It wasn't easy. There wasn't an easy day there. I mean, I could go into, I mean, I moved in there November the thirtieth. I got my first heart call on December the fifteenth. And I got prepped for surgery at three thirty the next afternoon. And only for that them to have to come in and tell me the heart was no good. Hmm. And I didn't get another call for nine months after that. Wow. I mean that that was devastating. Mm-hmm. I got sent back to my room. You know, to wait some more. I coded and crashed the day after Christmas. I woke up on a ventilator. That happened a few times. I was on a ventilator six times. I was on a heart-lung bypass machine twice. I lived on life support and CCU for 77 days on an axillary balloon pump. Wow. Life was not easy. It was mm-hmm. very difficult. But after 100, 135 days, I coded again. March 4th, I was given the option to get a, a LVAD. It's a left ventricle assist device, mm-hmm. which I did not want. I fought it all the way because I didn't want to get cut open twice, but I had no choice. You know, it was down to 4% ejection fraction. I was either live or die, or, you know, try to attempt to survive. So I got the LVAD, which is a battery operated, battery operated device. They implanted it in me. I operated on batteries. They like the old VCR batteries that would be the, the the cameras there the batteries we used to have on the I can't yeah. Think of yeah on the, the big, on, the big yeah, giant batteries yep, on the back of the camera yep I had two of them on me and two in an extra pack that I had to carry with, carry with me at all times they lasted for 12 to 15 hours a day then I had a 15 foot cord I'd plug into the wall at nighttime Jeez. there was a lot of good to this I didn't like it at all but it really did sustain my life it did me well I did well on it you know, I rode my bike, every stationary bike every day. This device, though, the goal was to get me out of the hospital and was able to walk my daughter down the aisle. Oh, fantastic. In July. That's so I got out, So I got out of the hospital April the 8th, and I just kept riding my stationary bike, getting stronger and stronger as we could go. And I was able to fly to Florida and walk her down the aisle, worried the whole time that I was uh, I was going to get a heart call and I wouldn't be able to get back to get my heart. That was a lot of stress there alone, but... I'm very fortunate. The company I work for made a, you know, Owens Corning was going to arrange to have a jet bring me back if if I needed it to. And they needed five hours notice to bring me back to New York. And I never needed wow. it, thankfully. Mm-hmm. That so was when, on July 15th. And, and then that call. call that call comes in again that there's a there's an organ available. There's a heart for you. On 6.40 p.m. on August the 19th, I got called. She goes, well, how soon can you be here? We got the perfect match for you. Wow. 
So I texted my wife, son and daughter, as I was walking in the house to tell my wife, I said, let's go. We got to go right now. And pretty much the rest is history. I did very well. I was, I, I was in shape from riding my bicycle all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, 12 to 15 miles a day I was doing every day. And, and I walked out. I walked out of that hospital in 34 days. Wow. And so you're doing well today? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. That's great. I never went back. I promised them I would never come back to the hospital, which was kind of a lie because I've been back every single week except for six up to February 18th last year when the pandemic hit. I support the patients and families in the hospital. All the upstate folks here know me. I started a heart transplant Zoom group I do weekly. And I, I deal now they, they put me on a a WebEx, they put me on a cart on an iPad and they wheel me room to room to talk to patients and families and share my story. That's fantastic. That's great. And it makes such a difference when you can hear it from someone like you. I, I wonder, Dave, because uh, I talked to Robin about this a little bit. Did you Do you know who your donor was? No, I do not. I just know he's a 30-year-old male. My donor mom is taking my letters and pictures. She's taken the last six I've sent. She's she's told live on New York down in the city. She's not ready to meet me. Doesn't know if she ever will be, but she, she really enjoys the information I'm sending her all the time. Boy, I bet that is something. So I'm so glad that you're doing well. And Dave, you know, we um, we spoke earlier um, uh, before we started recording. So you're a, a retired union member. Yes, I am. What I'm union local, did you belong to? I belong to the GMP Local 77 down in Fear of Bush, New York, and from Owens Corning. Okay. And so what does that stand for? The glass? Glass, molders, potters, plastics union. Okay. And um, Dave, we, we've also heard from someone who uh, was an IBEW member who was a live donor. Uh, we talked about that a little bit. He ended up giving one of his kidneys to his brother to um, save his life. Um, do you know of other union members you've come across in your own union? That this has yes. happened to? Tell me about that. Yeah. Yes, I do. I, uh, I also work with a uh, lady. Her name was Gail Morrow. She got really sick in July 2015. She needed a new liver, and she was on the list for a few years. Her daughter's college roommate, Crystal, told her, she always called her mom, that if she was a match, she would give her part of her liver. She went through the testing from J- January to July. She graduated from RPI in May. She was declared a match at the end of July. She gave Gail 60% of the liver in September. The liver is one of our organs that grows back. Mm-hmm. So they both, both organs grew back for both of them 100%. Crystal being as young as she would, she did really well. She went back to work actually within six weeks, seven weeks, she was back to work. And Gail's doing phenomenal today. And the livers become fully functional within a year, about a year's time. They come back to fully functional. Wow, that's fantastic. And that's just, that's not a relative. That's a friend. That's just somebody that's, re- you know, wanting to do so, something for someone. Exactly. That's exactly what it was. Crystal just, she's a, she's a good hearted person. I've met her many a times now. She volunteers also at our Donate Life Walks. Mm-hmm. We also got, I mean, we've had another kidney brother from our local. Sean got a, a kidney, I want to say five years ago. His was a cadaver kidney. And we've also, we've lost a union brother waiting for a kidney. Donnie waited for, I want to say three to four years. He worked C-shift, or E-shift rather, Mm -hmm. days. And he passed waiting for his kidney. 
Jeez. And I know that's those are the kind of stories that you're trying to change that outcome by being so involved. And, you know, it sounds like you've really dedicated a lot of your life, your time now to let people know what a difference it can make. So I wonder from you, what is the message that you give to people um, being someone who's alive today because someone decided to register to donate their their organs? What's your message to them? Folks, you can't take them with you. You know, we need we need more organ donors. New York's we're second from the bottom now. We just passed New Jersey. We need the third most organs in the United States. You know, we need more donors. You know, at least go home, have a conversation with your family, let them know where you stand. Okay. Uh, we just we need more donors, folks. Right. I don't know what else to say. Well, Dave, you've got um, quite a story, and and I'm sure that you've made a difference in people's lives just by being able to share it. And so we appreciate you being able to share it with us. And I'm so glad to hear you're doing well. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking. Joining me now on the podcast is the editor of the podcast, Kevin Eitzman. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Darcy. But it, the stories are pretty incredible, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, you 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 hear about people having a second chance and using it like Dave did and and Chris, you know, donating. Uh, you realize that whether you're doing a live donation or you're donating your organs after you pass, like Dave said, you can't take it with you. You know, living on in other people, I think, is both incredible stories. And uh, Robin was explaining um, to me a little bit um, after we recorded the interview with her about they expect the need to increase because of COVID. You know, you've got, um, we don't know what the long-term effects are going to be. And we know so many people are on ventilators, their lungs, um, you know, hearts they anticipate. So the need is definitely going to be increasing. So it's something, you know, people should think about. I mean, it's a personal decision, obviously, but hearing these stories, you know, just brings it to the surface and realize just how valuable that is. And um, Dave also talked to us a little bit about um, something that he's doing. He's so willing to talk about it. And then he um, he talked about painting rocks uh, yeah. all over the state. It's, it's like old school social media, right? Like, he, you know, they're painting rocks and leaving them at rest stops and where people can find it and saying, you know, you think it's tough waiting for your, your – uh, car to be ready and try waiting for a heart and uh, leading people to the to the Donate to Life program in New York. And so I think that's a great idea. And we can take that a step further by, you know, putting this out on social media and having you share it and letting people know and letting your family know you want to donate, you want to be an organ donor, encouraging others to do it. You know, there's people that are dying because they don't have uh, organs and we have the ability to, to, you know, help each other out. And that's what we do as unions, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we do as a union family. We help each other when when the time is needed. And there's no bigger time than when someone is waiting for an organ organ to live. Mm -hmm. and, and if you happen to be traveling up along uh, the up and down the New York State Thruway and see a rock that's painted with a message on it about organ donation, that's that's Dave. So snap a picture and share it on social media. And all the information uh, on how to register will make available not only on our website. Yeah, we'll, we'll include it with the podcast and we'll have it on the website and we're going to be encouraging unions and union members to participate and, and save lives. And share their stories too, if, if um, you have one. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you, Darcy. Thanks for listening to the Union Strong podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe and give us a rating. 
This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State unions strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysafl.cio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong.